Well, we've been in um, a series on Ephesians forever, uh, which is not something we normally do, but just for the last four months, we've been kind of going slowly through the book of Ephesians. It's been a true gift, and we have arrived at the last teaching in this series. So if you're doing a Bible study of Ephesians in your own life, you can go back through uh, those teachings. They're available. Uh, but we have arrived at the last half of Ephesians chapter 6. Now, as we, as we sort of turn there, think about how much thought you put into what you are wearing. Maybe you can remember the first day of school feeling because it was like yesterday. Or maybe it was a lot longer ago than yesterday. And maybe, did you ever have one of those years where you knew that your outfit was going to just, just slay? Like it was just going to, yeah. You like, you like, you walk out, you're looking down at your sneakers, like you almost trip on stuff because you're like, wow. And maybe you're wearing like uh, cargo shorts or a Puko shell necklace. Uh, that's from the 90s, I'm sorry. Um, although that might be back now. I don't know if they brought carpenter jeans back, but those were really handy if you were a carpenter and needed somewhere to put your hammer. Uh, if you don't know what those are, yep, you can Google that later. But we, we pay a lot of attention to what we're wearing. Our, our fashion has something to convey about us, right? I would be ashamed if you saw other pastors right now and how they are dressed because you'd be like, Ian's just wearing what all those other guys are wearing. And yes, that would be um, something quite ridiculous. But if you thought about what you wore today, and maybe, you know, that, that, that has varied at different points of your life. You know, I think sometime it hits a high point, some point in middle school, early high school, where you're like, this has to be an absolute perfect representation of who I want to be. And then, you know, by the time undergrad rolls around, you're just like sweats and sweatshirts. Thank you. It's called athleisure. It's a thing. But we clothe ourselves. We think about that when we wake up. What are we trying to convey? And we clothe ourselves in a style that suggests something about the image of who we want people to think we are. We also do this in other ways, right? Like we have this exterior that we present to the world, but we also, we clothe ourselves with carefully curated social media feeds. Like, this is what I want you to think of me. This is the kind of stuff that I'm doing, that I'm reading, that I'm thinking about. Good filters, good quotes, the right political statements to signal to people, this is who I am. We clothe ourselves with achievements and success. We clothe ourselves with humor and with sarcasm to kind of keep people at arm's length. We clothe ourselves with a shell that no one can pierce because we're afraid of being hurt, of being seen, of being vulnerable. Maybe you've been hurt before by people coming too close and you think, if they saw the real me, they would not like that. And so I keep you at arm's length. I have this exterior that I built out. Now at a much more practical level, when we think about what we wear for the day, we dress to take account of the weather the activities that we'll be doing. Are you going to work? Are you going to exercise? And today, as we round out our series in Ephesians, we'll be considering the conditions that Paul gives us. The activity that Paul is calling us to is simple. It's living. He's saying, this is what it means. My final word to you, Church of Ephesus and other churches that I'm sending this letter to, this is what I want you to see that living is. But what we find is that living is a condition that is fraught with danger. It would be tempting 
in this world that seems so ready to hurt us, that seems so prevalent with traps and with deceit and with pain, it would be tempting to put on armor. It would be tempting to put on someone else's armor because we suppose that when we look at other people's lives, we suppose that they have it easier than we do. And they don't have the same struggles and the same thoughts that we have experienced. But none of that, as we see throughout the scriptures, not somebody else's armor or not building up this exterior that nothing can pierce, none of that will do. And what Paul is calling us to is receive the grace of God and the clothes that he provides us with. Now, I love reading the scriptures through these different lenses. You kind of get these different pictures of what God is doing in the world. And one of the interesting lenses that you can look at, kind of the wide angle of the story that God is writing, the story of salvation that he has given to us, one of the angles that I looked at this week was the angle of clothing. How much the Bible focuses on what the people are wearing. The first humans in the garden were unclothed. They were naked, but they didn't know it until they moved beyond the prohibition that God had given to them. You you see, God said to them, I give you all that I have, all of the abundance of this beautiful creation that I've called good and very good. I give it all to you. But there's one thing that's not good for you. This one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is not good for you. And so I give you all of this, all of this permission, but one prohibition, stay away from this. And as we know the story in Genesis 3, the first man and the first woman take and they eat from the tree. And what they realize in that moment, as they eat from this tree that God has said is not good for them, is that they are unclothed, that they are naked. Their eyes are open to their own shame and vulnerability, and they try. They then try to clothe themselves and they sew together figs and leaves as in an effort to hide from God. And God comes through the garden as he walks through the garden in the cool of the evening and he he asks the question that is so filled with joy. Where are you? You know, you can almost envision like a father coming home and his kids like almost like, where are you? And the situation darkens in that moment. And God asked the question, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree which which I commanded you not to eat from? But God doesn't leave these people in their shoddy garments, in their slow and small attempts to cover their shame with figs and leaves. God doesn't leave them. He covers them. He clothes them with skins to protect them. If you scroll throughout Genesis, Jacob wears fur to masquerade as Esau. Leah sneaks into Jacob's tent by the cover of night wearing a veil. Joseph is marked by jealousy because of his multicolored coat. Moses first wore the clothes of the oppressor, of the Egyptians that enslaved him. But later he would wear a veil to cover the glory of God that radiated from his face. Aaron wears the carefully crafted garments of the high priest. We could go on and on. David tries to wear Saul's arm, but it just won't fit. The Bible has a lot to say about what we try to wear. And it's likely as you find yourself in kind of this last effort of summer, sort of on the cusp of new beginnings and at the end of, of a season that has passed, that things are changing. You're shifting gears. Maybe you're starting college for the first time. Congratulations. Welcome. Seriously. Maybe you're starting seminary for the first time. And friends, I say this to every class that begins at the seminary. 
We need you to love the scriptures, to see how beautiful they are. And I don't know who in our midst is that's your story, that's your course, but you will find that Jesus is more beautiful than anything that you can imagine. And so I give you that charge. Like take the time to love the word that God has given to us. You will find the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son, the infinite word that speaks the world to life, and it will bring life to those people that you serve. But wherever you find yourself, maybe you don't have anything to do with school, and you're just happier that there's going to be some cooler weather coming. Today, Paul is giving us an invitation and an exhortation of what it means to walk in the love of Jesus and the garments that he gives us that are fit for this walking. And again, as we find, as we'll see, what we find is that this world that we are called to walk in is a world that is full of enemies, that is full of darkness. And we'll see this here in Ephesians chapter 6. We'll turn to the text beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Now last week, this is kind of part two of a two-part teaching. Last week we focused more on those verses about the devil, the powers and principalities, and how things like systemic racism take up residence in human systems. You can pull up that teaching on any podcast platform. Today we're going to focus a little bit more on the individual, um, but last week we kind of focused on the corporate elements of this, and so I encourage you uh, to look into that. But by way of summary of last week's teaching, Paul identifies our enemy as none other than the devil. And we talked about that if you're like, oh, the devil, really? Um, we, we kind of uh, waded our way into that. But the devil operating in all sorts of different manifestations and what we call powers and principalities. And Jesus says of the devil in John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a father. He is a liar and the father of lies. Paul, in our section in Ephesians, describes the wiles of the devil. In Greek, this is methodias, where we get our word method. What we see is that what the devil's methods are, are lies, distortion, deception with the goal of choking out life. Jesus says in John that he's a murderer. Peter says he's like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. But here today we have Paul's garments of battle and of grace. Garments that tell us that we don't have to be afraid. 
That though the world is truly fraught with darkness, we do not walk in the dark, but we walk as children of the light. And the enemy that is arrayed against us is very real and powerful, but we serve the risen king who has overcome the world. That we can take heart in him, and we can take heart not just for the future, but right now. And Paul is using the image and analogy of the Roman legions that were so formidable in his day. So formidable with their tactics. And now, the individual analogies, sword and shield, are not necessarily that important. But what is important here is that a legion was only effective to the extent that it was a cohesive unit. Paul finishing this letter to the Ephesians with this kind of imagery is inviting us to be united as one, moving with one heart, bearing one another's burdens. Now, I just want to look briefly in sort of a way of overview of the different garments that Paul says are ours by the grace of Jesus. All of them wrap around this idea of truth. That as the devil is the father of lies, Jesus brings his truth. And the truth unmasks the powers and the principalities. The truth brings healing and freedom. The truth brings salvation to us. And we'll see that today. Paul offers us these garments of truth in his last words to the Ephesians. Garments of righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and spirit. And they all combat the methods of the liar, the devil. So first, Paul says, put on the belt of truth. And what I want to do is just kind of show you like these, how these combat individual lies that we often experience. And these aren't all of the lies that they combat, but certainly speak to each key issue. And we'll kind of go through each one of those there. Put on the belt of truth against the lies of our inner voice of shame. As Jesus said of the devil, there is no truth in him. But we have to get more specific to see the shape that lies often take, especially in our interior worlds. The Hebrew word for, lo, for the devil was hasatan, which means, uh, among other things, accuser. Now, can you imagine if you had this person in your life whom every time you are around them spent nothing but their time degrading you and talking about how terrible you are? You have them over for a dinner party and they're like, these decorations, like, are you sure? The food is terrible. Our kids started watching uh, MasterChef. And our kids don't eat anything. But what, for whatever reason, they've self-identified with Gordon Ramsay, who critiques everything. And so they don't eat any, anything, but they're like, this is under-seasoned. <laughs> but when your friends walk away from the table, they say, you know, they don't really like you. They're, they're just kind of covering it up. They're laughing at you in the other room. Let me tell you, you probably would not invite this person over again, right? Like, that person's off of the guest list. But for how many of us do we give free reign to the inner critic, the voice of shame that just runs rampant in our interior thoughts? We just say, yeah, whatever you're saying is the truth. And we just let them go on and on. Look at what Kurt Thompson, a therapist and interpersonal neurobiologist, says of shame. He says, shame is not just a consequence of something that our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and with each other, 
to disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. Andrew, I think I've got that slide. You want to put that up there just so people can see that one? Because I think it's so important. Shame is trying to unravel us at every angle. The emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and with each other and disintegrate any and all gifts. And so what this inner voice begins to do is to say, you don't have anything to offer to this world. But what Jesus is saying of you is that I have created you as a gift to the world, that as you come to know my love, you will come to know yourself and you will be able to offer that gift to the world and you will stop trying to offer somebody else's gift to the world. Because along with a gift, you have limits and those too are a gift. But the inner voice of shame the inner critic wants to keep us thinking we have nothing to offer. That, that its propaganda is true and that we should just submit to it. This is a method of the devil. Now culturally, we're told the response to this in, in the face of this kind of anxiety is to live your truth, right? To be your true self. But that doesn't seem to have any long-standing power against shame. Now, why is this? Because the, the truth, is, if it is not something that we receive from outside of ourselves, ultimately it is downsized to our own experience or our own imagination. We become the product of our thoughts or the things that have happened to us. Because the truth is not something that we can manifest or self-create. The truth is a gift that we receive. The Bible says that Jesus himself is the truth. And that's why so many of us cannot distinguish between the voice of shame and accusation, that sense of disintegration that we all at varying levels experience, and the truth of who we are. In Ephesians, the truth is something we hear spoken to us. It is a gift from God offered to us. And when we allow the truth to be a gift, something that is received, a relationship that is spoken over us, as 1 John says, how great is the love that has been lavished upon us that we would be called the daughters and the sons of God. The truth not only can become our truth, but it is a truth that will hold us in the face of all the onslaughts of our inner critic. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and I think what he's doing here in Ephesians 6 in our text, he's sort of hyperlinking back to arguments that he's already made. So you'll see, as we kind of go through this passage, we'll, we'll hearken back to some of what he's already said. Ephesians chapter 4 says, We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up, in every way, to him who is the head into Christ. And so the, the belt of truth combats the lies of our inner critic. Next, Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And I think that stands against the lies of our own distorted desires. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says, 22, he says, you were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul then offers us this breastplate of righteousness. He says, this is a gift to you. You don't have to live in the old pattern, in the old way anymore. And often what we find, when, especially when it comes to desire, 
is that our desires themselves are not broken. Their desires for God, their desires to be known, to know others and to love well, but they're distorted. And so Paul is trying to say, put on the self that you've been given, this new garment of a new life. You don't have to live in the slavery of the old way anymore. He invites us to put on the new self. In Ephesians 4, and then I think he's showing us with that new self, a glimpse of that, what it looks like in Ephesians 6. He then says, put on the shoes of peace that are ready to carry the gospel of peace against the lies of anxiety. Now, peace in the biblical sense is a cosmic peace. It is both internal and external. It is that, that feeling we would describe as I feel at peace, like I feel like everything's in its right place. But it's also this sense of cosmic justice. If you read Genesis 2, there are trees that are good for food. There was it, Genesis 2, the shalom, the peace of God, is a world where everybody has enough. And so it is both internal and external. Steve Cuss, who writes on anxiety and specifically its impact upon leaders, says that anxiety exists in four spaces. First, there's the anxiety within us. And your body often is telling you when you are experiencing anxiety, right? Like you could probably, if we were to go around and ask everybody in the room, like where, where do you first kind of get the signals? In your chest or in your shoulder. Your body starts telling you, right? Like something, something is not right. Something is causing me fear and pain. Now anxiety, as we'll see, is a, is a normal reaction. It's something we all experience. Anxiety exists in the space between us and another person. Have you ever been in a conflict with someone, a friend or a spouse, and you just like, you can almost feel this thing that's between you? Anxiety exists in the space between others. Maybe you can identify this in your own family, your own life. You're like, there's something here. I'm not necessarily involved in this, but I'm being sort of looped into it. It's called triangulation. You're being brought into it. And anxiety exists in the space within another person. Murray Bowen, who pioneered systems theory, describes how anxiety is contagious within groups. And when it is given free reign, it will spread and grow. Now, anytime I bring up this word, anxiety, I think it's very important for me because of the way churches have often uh, been not the best uh, heralds and ambassadors of what it means to kind of allow Jesus to have a free reign over our mental health. I feel like it's very important for me to offer a couple caveats. So when I'm speaking of anxiety, I'm talking about what Bowen describes anxiety as. Anxiety can be defined as the response of an organism or human to a threat, real or imagined. It is a process that in some form is present in all living things. Anxiety is normal. There's acute anxiety when you see a car coming towards you that you, like, your body takes over, fight or flight, like you, you move, and there's chronic anxiety. Anxiety is something that all of us daily deal with and wrestle with. Anxiety can be, it can be a response of fear and doubt. It can be a doubting that God is good. It can be a doubting that he will take care of you. It can be a believing of the lies of the enemy and refusing to trust in God's goodness and presence in our lives. It can be that. Or chronic anxiety can also be part of a tangled web of neurobiological chemicals that require medication and care. And both of those things can be true at the same time. As with anything in life, anything, discernment is required. But in the place where we are shrinking back and simply submitting to fear, Jesus calls us to more. 
And in the place, friends, and for those of you who suffer with chronic anxiety and mental health and your depression, can I just say Jesus is with you. It is not a sign that you are hopelessly broken. It is not a sign that you need to just power up and find some more faith. Jesus shows us his response to suffering. He enters into it. He enters into its depths. He stays and he conquers. So friends, if that's you today, I just want to say that simply. But as Paul invites us to put on these shoes of peace, he's inviting us to see that, that, that peace in Ephesians is often spoken about in the sense that it, is, it addresses that which takes place between two groups, specifically Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, For he is our peace, this being Jesus. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Paul in Ephesians 2 is talking about the wall between Jews and Gentiles, two disparate people groups in the first century when Paul is writing this letter. And how the presence of Jesus in the Spirit breaks down our cultural walls. And when Paul describes shoes that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, he is describing the willingness to receive and to wade into these territories that are often fraught with anxiety, whether that be the space within us, the space within another, or the space between us. He's calling us, as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. To receive the peace of Christ is to receive a call to be an ambassador carrying the peace of Jesus. As Paul has outlined in the letter to the Ephesians, this happens at every level, at the macro level, between different people groups, between Jew and Gentile, in, in our day, between different ethnic and racial groups, between different socioeconomic classes. This happens at a very macro level, but it also happens at a micro level, between members of the church itself, between husbands and wives, children and parents, as we saw earlier in Ephesians 6. We are called to receive peace, to put it on so that we can carry peace. Paul then invites us to put on the shield of faith, faith against the lies of self-sufficiency. The lies of despair wake so many of us up in the morning that we are alone in the world. That any good that comes our way depends upon us, that we have to self-create, that we have to save ourselves at some level. And the only response to this kind of crippling sort of anxiety, performance-based, is to keep people at arm's length. So many of you are here Welcome to Princeton. And you're here because of your achievements. You're here to kill it, to be thought of as the best and the brightest. But there's a kind of fear that's always wrapped up in that. A fear of scarcity, a fear of being exposed, a fear that if we don't seize the life that we want, that we will be left behind. And within all of that is the message that you are on your own. Thomas Merton says, In our zeal to become the landlords of our own being, we cling to each achievement as a kind of verification of our self-proclaimed reality. We become the center, and God somehow recedes to an invisible fringe. But Ephesians tells us that we have not been marked out by our own doing, our own building, our own making a name for ourselves, that we have been chosen, that you've been redeemed, that you've been set apart. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say, put on the helmet of salvation. And the helmet of salvation stands against the lies of self salvation. 
And just as we cannot sustain ourselves, so we cannot save ourselves. Now, I don't know if this is what Paul had in mind, but I sort of like that Paul applies the the analogy of salvation to the helmet. Elsewhere, Paul will say in Romans 12, verse 2, in beholding God's incredible mercy to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we seek after salvation in so many different ways. As the glory of Jesus' salvation shows us, salvation is not just about life somewhere off in the future. It is about life right now. Salvation is about life defeating death, distortion, and sinfulness right here and right now. That the kingdom of God has come near, that we are invited to embrace God's future right now. But we try to find salvation in saving enough money and fulfilling our desires and escaping the pains of reality. And our hearts cry from deep within. The truest cry of our heart is save us. And friends, I have good news for you. He has. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For by the grace of God you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You don't have to save yourselves. You are not alone. The last garment that Paul invites us to take up is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit stands against the lies of despair. Jesus' temptations from the devil in Luke 4 and his own responses with the word of God give us this incredible insight and how the word that God has given us is, as Hebrews says, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. The devil tempts Jesus to sustain himself, to save himself, and to build a spectacular reputation as Messiah and King. And how often do we hear those temptations in our own lives? When the voice of lies within us tells us that we are on our own, Jesus says, look at the flowers of the field. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, and yet God takes care of them. And how much more, how much more are you worth to God than they are? And when the voice of distortion tells us that we have to see his power, that we must be recognized by others, that we have to be spectacular and Instagrammable and beautiful, successful, Jesus says, the one who would follow after me must become a servant. That dying to ourselves and to one another is actually living. That your Father in heaven sees the secret places where greatness resides. And in doing so, he calls us back to the reality that all of this is wrapped up in truth and that all of it is a gift. He says, take up the word of God. He finishes with this exhortation. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And I want to, just as a way of invitation, in view of God's mercy and love, to invite you to a simple spiritual practice this fall as things are beginning again. As you kind of have that New Year's mentality where you're like, this is going to be a new me, new you. And what you find is that that may be true to take up this simple practice. The Spirit of God, Paul says, pray in the Spirit at all times. The Spirit of God points us to Jesus. It is the Spirit of God saying, this is who you are. You are a product not of your own making or your own doing, but of what Jesus has done for you in his life and his death and his resurrection. It turns our affections and our attentions, our desires to Jesus. And I simply want you to let the truth of the Spirit of God set in in your life, to set you free to live in light of the reign of King Jesus, as Hebrews says, to fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. 
And what if in this season where everything is starting anew, is ramping up, where the pace picks up, where your own needs increase, you turned your attention to Jesus? Look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, with all kinds of prayers and requests, it's just kind of another way of Paul saying, ask him for anything. Jesus says in John 15, ask me for whatever you want. And I'm inviting you just to pay attention to Jesus. Listen, I don't have some magical fix, some genius practice that you've never thought of. And so the simple practice I'm inviting you to is to open the Bible, to read the Gospels. Find one. I love John. You might not like John. That's okay. But pay attention to Jesus. Because Jesus is the truth. In Christ, we learn the truth. And friends, there is no other way. And there are different ways to encounter this. You can read this by yourself. You can read it aloud. You can listen to somebody else read it aloud. Do you realize that reading the Bible is a fairly recent phenomenon for people in church? That most people had to go to a certain place and hear it read? But whatever you have to do in this season, turn your attention, your affections, your desires to Jesus. He is that good. He has so much waiting for us in that secret place. And it is his word that is spoken over us that tells us the truth of who we are. And when we turn our attention to Jesus, we find that God is so much better than we ever would have imagined. We think about what Jesus is wearing. I want you to look at this painting as a way of closing. I'm going to invite our friends in the band to come on forward. This is by Diego Velasquez in the 17th century. And look at what Jesus is wearing in this painting. What are the garments that he takes on? You see, when we look at Jesus, when we look at what he is wearing, we find that literally he has unburdened himself from every garment of clothing. He has allowed himself to be stripped to the bare in a way of death that would have been very humiliating in the first century. He has no clothes on. He wears a crown upon his head. When the first people took from the tree that God told them not to eat from, There was a curse pronounced in all sorts of different facets and ways. And one of the curses was that the ground would only yield thorns and thistles. And Jesus takes that curse upon his head and he places it as he redeems the world. You see, when we look at God, when we look at what he is wearing, we see that he's wearing nothing but self-giving love. That as he offers us his garments of praise, as he offers us his armor of peace and of truth and of righteousness, that he has given of himself and shown us this is the way, complete and total trust, self-giving love. And when we see Jesus for who he is, when we see what Jesus is wearing, We see the truth of what we need in this world. It's not more achievement. It's not more uh, hiding from other people. But what we need is to give ourselves over completely to God. And Jesus says this on the cross. He says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. As we begin this fall season, there's so many things we think about that we think we need. What we really need is just to see Jesus. Jesus tells a story of a father who had two sons. And one of the sons went off to a far country. One of the sons went off and squandered his wealth. And then eventually, through a whole sequence of events, he comes back home. 
And the thing that transforms this son's opinion and view of his own father is what he sees as he pays attention, as he's walking on the road. He looks up and he sees that his father is running towards him. You see, the son had misunderstood his father, but in that moment, he sees a grace that is beyond anything that he expected. And the father runs up to him and he hugs him and he welcomes him home. And then he calls the servants of the house and he says, put a robe on his back, put a ring on his finger. The father clothes the son. He has given us everything that we could ever need. We try to armor up and power up with all these different ways and Jesus offers us his very self. And friends, through his life, death, and resurrection, he has given you everything you need. As we do each week, we come to a table. And over the next few months,